I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. We are continuing in our sermon series entitled The Acceptable Sins of Christians. These are the topics which Scripture very clearly addresses as sins, but we don't always treat them as such. And we are finishing up our series. We're going to do a two-part series this morning on our final topic, and that is the topic of unrepentance. Unrepentance. What does that mean? We'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, But our hope and our prayer, as Pastor Marcel and I were putting this series together, is that this would be a season of growth for us as a congregation, that we would have the opportunity, as we always do when we open up God's Word, to say, How am I doing in my walk with Christ? How am I growing in that process of daily sanctification where where I'm seeking to look and act more like Jesus? What are the areas of my life that I haven't yet given allegiance over to Jesus and I've kept to myself? And truth be told, as we were putting this series together, there were a wide range of topics we felt like we could engage. But the one topic in particular we always knew that we were going to talk about was the topic Of unrepentance. In many ways, it it is kind of the, the foundation of some of the other topics that we have been addressing. This whole idea of refusing to give our full allegiance to Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that this morning and how it plays out in our life. So here is a bit of a definition for you on this, uh, this word repentance. We don't use that outside of a church context very often. So what does repentance ultimately mean? I put it this way in your note sheet. Repentance literally means to turn around. It's a, a 180 degree turn. You were going north, now you're going south. You were going west, now you're going east. To make a U-turn, it is a transformation of the heart. A transformation of the heart. Uh, Perhaps a bit of a word picture would be helpful for you. The, The Greek word for repentance is a word metanoia. Don't worry, there's no test on this later. Metanoia, what does that mean? Well, we actually have an English word that we use that's connected to that Greek word, and that's the word metamorphosis. And what is metamorphosis? It is when we have a little caterpillar groveling around on its belly, and then as my six-year-old son tells me, then it goes inside a chrysalis for a while, and then it comes out on the other side completely transformed into a butterfly. That's an example of metamorphosis. And here's a definition from Webster. I absolutely love these definitions. Let me give you two. The first one is this. The process of transformation from an immature form to a mature adult form. Or what about this one? A change of nature into a completely new one by both natural and supernatural means. I love that. That's what metamorphosis is. That's what it means to to engage in a life of repentance. You were this. Now you've been transformed into something completely different. And that's what Scripture says to us repeatedly. I think, for instance, of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... 
He is a new creation. What does it mean to be a new creation? You used to be this, and then you've been completely transformed that you have become something completely different. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I don't know about you, but there are times in my walk where I get this little guy on my shoulder and and he says to me, Justin, what's the big deal anyway? You're already a follower of Jesus. You've already punched the golden ticket. You already have salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you really have to be fully obedient? Do you really have to jump through all these hoops to try and act like Jesus? Do you always have to be perfectly faithful? I mean, let's not be legalistic about this. You don't have to be perfect. And then I start to make justifications in my own life on account of my my behavior or my actions or my thoughts or my attitudes. What's the big deal anyway? If God is a God of grace, then maybe it's my responsibility to sin. No, that didn't sound so good, does it? It seems to sound so much better when I say it by myself in my own room when no one else is there. But those are the justifications that we can often make in our own lives. And this morning, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is is talking to not only the churches in Rome, but his hope and his prayer is that this message will spread like wildfire to the four corners of the known world. And one of the issues that a lot of Christians are facing during this time in a first century context, where not very many people are followers of Jesus, is can't you have your cake and eat it too? Can't you be a follower of Jesus and also do whatever you want? And so the book of Romans really is one precise doctrine on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let me just kind of bring you up to speed before we read Romans chapter 6. The first three chapters of the book of Romans are devoted to understanding that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. Here's God's standard. Here's my actions. I have fallen short of God's glory. And there is nothing that I can do to save myself from my own predicaments. Through all of my earnest striving and working and toiling and spinning and doing anything that I can, I still cannot reach God's standard. And so it's a pretty bleak affair. But Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 3, the story isn't done yet. Because someone has already paid for your debt, dear Justin. His name is Jesus Christ. And he died a sinner's death for you so that you can be set free. And Christ's righteousness has now been credited to your account. His righteousness is my righteousness. Every time God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see my brokenness. He doesn't see my imperfection. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. So I've been set free on account of Christ. And then in Romans chapter 4, The Apostle Paul says, and listen, this isn't something that you can earn. It is a free gift. What is a gift? You cannot earn it. The unmerited favor of God. And I think one of the things that we can kind of get caught up in a little bit as Christians, if we're not careful, is we tend to have kind of a hybrid view of the doctrine of justification. 
We have a view as though we know it's the grace of God, we know it's a gift from Jesus, but there's some things we have to do as well, right? So if I'm sharper than the average tool in the shed, if I'm just a little more faithful as a Christian, if I do the right combination of things, then I can have salvation in Jesus. Paul says no, absolutely not. This is a free gift. It is the gift of God, not account of what you have done but in spite of what you have done and on account of what Christ has done for you. And then in Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul says, and now if you believe that that Christ has died for you, how much more joyous is it in knowing that Christ lives for you and he has sent his one and only Holy Spirit to come into your life to change you every single day. And then we get to Romans chapter six. And something happens. The Apostle Paul realizes that there might be a loophole when it comes to our Christian faith. And the loophole is this. If God is a God of forgiveness, why can't I just keep sinning? Why can't I just do whatever I want? God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. He's already paid for it on the cross. Why don't I just do whatever I want? What incentive do I have to act like Jesus, to be obedient to him day after day? Now, if your Bibles are open, I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5, starting at verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20. Here's where he kind of compiles the last five chapters. The law was brought in so that the trespass may increase. Here's the law. Here's Justin's actions. The trespass has increased on account of the law. But, circle, highlight, underline, the best word right here. But, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have been granted a new righteousness on account of what Christ has done for us. And let me tell you something, that is incredibly good news for every single person in this room. There might be some of you here this morning, you say, Justin, I totally blew it this week. If the people in my row knew what I've done, I'd be kicked out of here so fast. Well, let me tell you something. A fundamental message that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope your your heart is open to receive this. You cannot outsin the cross. You cannot outsin the cross. Jesus Christ has already paid for your debt. He's already paid for my debt. And that's something that ought to humble us, truly humble us. But again, upon hearing the gracious message of God, we might be tempted to exploit it, and that's where Paul goes next. He goes to a fundamental question. This is what I put in your note sheet. If God is so gracious... Why can't I just keep on sinning? Why can't I just keep on sinning? That's what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. If your Bibles are open, look at this with me. What shall we say then? 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We say, there's grace, there's forgiveness. I can do whatever I want. I can do as though I please. I got the golden ticket. Everything's okay. Now, here's the thing that we need to realize. The Apostle Paul recognizes something. There is a unique danger, spiritually speaking, to preaching grace to sinners. There's a unique danger when it comes to preaching grace to sinners. Why? Because we tend to try to exploit it. To say, well, if there's already grace, well, why don't I just do whatever I want? And Paul means to share with us that should not be. And now he wants to give us reasons on account of why it should not be the case. So look at verses one through four with me. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. A new life in Jesus Christ. Paul says, the picture that we need to have in our mind is the picture of baptism. Our baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant promises of God. What is happening on the inside is visually represented on the outside. Uh, You might recall if you've witnessed baptisms here uh, over the course of the last few months, we've had a lot of them, haven't we? Uh, One of the things that we get to recognize in that moment is that in the same way that we wash our hands when they're dirty or we wash our bodies when they're unclean, the water of baptism signifies the washing away of our sins. And the renewal of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is something that happens in an instant. That's the doctrine of justification. We have been set free. We have a new life on account of Christ. So the first answer that the Apostle Paul wants to give us on on, on the question, if God's so gracious, why can't we keep on sinning? The first answer that he gives us is this. Since we died to sin, we can't live in it any longer. We can't live in it any longer. Why are you still trying to go back out into the backyard with the shovel in hand, digging six feet underground, pulling out the old dead Justin, taking the corpse and throwing it over your shoulder and lugging it around? Why do you insist on going back to the old life? You're like that caterpillar that that became a butterfly and you can now fly. You have new joy that is found in Jesus Christ, but you insist on groveling on the ground floor. Why do you keep going back to the old life? God has given you a new life, a better life in him. June 5th, 2010. I stood in front of a congregation in a rented tux and my wife Julie, she had her purchased wedding dress. Why do you have to purchase them? You only use them once. Anyway. And she said, I do. And I, of course, said I do really quickly before she had a chance to go back and we were married. 
And let me tell you something about Julie. She's pretty amazing. And I know that, you know, if she ever heard me talking in front of about 500 people about how amazing and gracious and kind and how much of a faithful friend she is, she would never forgive me, so I won't do that. (laughs) Oh, also, I'm supposed to make a retraction. She can kill her own spiders. I don't have to kill her spiders. But let me tell you something about Julie. You wouldn't believe the demands that she has put upon my life. Just think about this for a second. Like, on the day that we were married, Julie said to me, you need to stop seeing other people. I'm like, seriously? Like, all other people? She said, yeah. I said, Julie, you know what? I'm a stand-up guy. I'm willing to give you my entire life on Sundays and on Wednesday nights. And in fact, I'm such a great guy. I'm going to be faithful to you 95% of the time. And do you know what Julie said? She said, that's not good enough. And I said, are you kidding me? She said, yeah, I need you to be faithful to me 100% of the time. Can you believe it? And you can, can't you? Because that's just the way that it works when we enter into a marriage relationship. We say, I will be faithful to you you will be faithful to me. I am yours and you are mine in thick and in thin, in sickness or in health, in life or in death. And you know what the funny thing is? That makes pure and complete logical sense in a marriage between two sinful people. And yet, when we hear the word of God, the God who formed us, who knit us together on our mother's womb, who created the foundations of the world, who provided a way to bring us back from the dead after we fell into sin, who on account of the work of Jesus Christ bought us back from the auction and was 100% faithful to us in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our sin, when he says, I want you to be 100% faithful to me, we say, are you kidding me? Jesus, I'm willing to give you Sundays. I'm willing to give you Wednesdays, but let's not go overboard here. Let's not go crazy. And so the message of Jesus through the Apostle Paul is that Jesus says, I don't want your Sundays. I don't want your Wednesday nights. I want your life. I want every single aspect of your life. And then he continues in that vein of thought in Romans 6, verse 5. Take a look at this. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has now been set free from sin. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. This reminds me of another story in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, in which Jesus goes up to the disciples and he says, it's almost time for me to leave you. And in fact, it's better that I leave you. 
And the disciples say, Jesus, are you kidding me? We have seen you preach with power and with authority. We have seen miraculous signs and wonders that you have done. People flock to you in the thousands. People are daily being saved. And you mean to tell us that it would be better for you to leave us, Jesus? No, no way. There's no possible way. And then Jesus says, you don't understand. When I leave you, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. And then from there, he shares a very familiar story, one that if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this numerous times. John chapter 15, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, I will produce good fruit in you. And in seven short verses, he says, abide in me, abide in me, abide, 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 abide. It's like there's a message. He says, abide in me. Stay close to me, stay connected to me. And that is how I will produce a new life in you. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse five. Look at it again. If we have been united with him in a death, how much more shall we be united with him in the resurrection? So that's the second point in your note sheet. We have been united with Christ. So remain in him. Abide in him. That's how the Christian life works. Every single time you want to pick up the old self, where, where you make those justifications in your mind, you say, let me just watch this a little bit longer. Let me just click on this. I don't want to forgive. I want to remain bitter. Justin, you don't know what they did to me. They deserve this. I don't des- they don't deserve my forgiveness, Justin. And I want to use my tongue however I please. If I complain, if I'm bitter, if I slander, if I gossip, what does it matter to you? I'll use my tongue however I want. It feels good to get heated. It feels good to get angry. Every single time we say that, every single time we do this, we, we unplug from our connection with Jesus. He will always abide with us. He's always present with us. But we detach ourselves from him in, we, in doing that. And that's what he says in verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8, he says this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. So here's how I put it in your note sheet to kind of highlight this. Your old life was put to death so that you could live a new life. So that you could live a new life. Our sin nature no longer has mastery over us. We are still tempted to sin, aren't we? Every single day. But the power and the the effects of sin no longer have mastery over us. For the first four weeks of this series, I highlighted Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. And it seems fitting now as this series is almost drawing to a close to highlight this one more time. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this, For you were once darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, in all righteousness and truth. And find out whatever pleases the Lord. You see, the pattern of a Christian life is to say, I want to find out whatever it is that pleases the Lord, and then I want to do precisely that. Our chief purpose in life is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, and to follow Him in obedience and love. When the Bible says jump, I say how high. When God says be obedient to me, I say I will choose each day to deny myself, to pick up my cross, and to follow you. I have a new life, a new identity in Jesus. You see, for those of you who are guests here this morning, our, our goal, our chief purpose as members of Gateway is to find out whatever pleases the Lord and to do precisely that. Now let me give you a bit of an example on what it looks like to kind of throw off the new life and to go back to the old life. Sometimes we might act like a, a five-year-old kid who goes up to his parents and he says, Mom, Dad, I've been thinking about this for a long, long time and I've decided you need to take me to Disneyland. They say, really? Yes, I've been waiting my whole life. We need to go to Disneyland. And you say, okay, well, I, I guess since you've been waiting for such a long time, we're going to go to Disneyland. And you drive all the way down there, you punch the ticket, you get on the inside, and finally, there he is. In all of its glory, he is in Disneyland. But when he gets on the inside of the gate, something weird happens. He refuses to go in. He refuses to go on any of the rides. He refuses to enjoy any of the attractions. In fact, all he does is cling to the gate that he's inside of. And imagine, I know he's gone, but just imagine for a moment, if we can imagine, that Walt Disney himself comes out and he comes to your little boy and he says, would you like the Grand Tour? I built the place. And your son says, no thanks, I'll, I'll just stay right here. He's on the inside, he's in Disneyland, but he refuses to experience the joy that comes with being on the inside. We would say, that's craziness. And yet, how many of us settle for that type of life when it comes to our Christian faith? We've punched the golden ticket. We're on the inside, but there we are clinging to the bars, reaching outside the bars, trying to get back to the old life. No wonder it hasn't brought about joy and transformation in your life. And so I, I want to say this to you as humbly and as graciously as I can. But it's no wonder that the life that you live if it's patterned by those types of behaviors, hasn't brought about the true joy that many other Christians have been talking about. Don't be surprised if that cheap knockoff for Christianity leaves you dry and bewildered and afraid and frustrated, wondering to yourself, where is the joy? Where's the joy? And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to do. 
He wants to challenge what we say we believe with how we act on a day-to-day basis. I think of what Charles Spurgeon says. He put it this way, and I find this to be absolutely amazing. He says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. It will not save my soul. And so the fourth point in your note sheet is this. You are forgiven and free to live for God, not for yourself. Not for yourself. Isn't our campus beautiful? I think it's absolutely stunning the amount of work and time that has gone into making this campus the way that it is. And yet one of the things that I find so amazing about Scripture is that unlike in the Old Testament where the kabod, the glory of God manifest itself in the Holy of Holies in the temple, after Jesus died on the cross, it says the curtain was torn in two and then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and it descended upon the believers at Pentecost. So here's the question I wanna ask you. Where does the Holy Spirit reside? In our hearts. Not in a building. Not in the Holy of Holies. Not anywhere else. It says that, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what scripture says. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So here's the question that I wanna ask you. What's your true north? What's your internal compass? What is your chief purpose and mission in life? What drives your desires? What drives your behaviors? Have you decided wholeheartedly to follow Jesus in obedience and love, or are you still hanging on to the old self? I think of what James says in James chapter 2 verse 19 he says you believe that God is one that's great even the demons believe that the only difference between you and them is that they shudder at the name of Jesus they have such core convictions that Jesus is who he says he is that they shudder have we devoted to follow have we fully devoted ourselves to follow Jesus in obedience and love Let me tell you something. My life before Christ was much like this piece of water. See, the outside, that's my life. It's just a container. And on the inside is all of my attitudes, my behaviors, my actions, the choices that I have made on an ongoing basis that ultimately says this, God, I'm gonna live for myself. I'm not gonna choose to be obedient to you. I'm going to follow my own wants, my own dreams, my own desires. That's Romans chapter one, two, and three. That on account of my actions, this is all that I have. That's not much. I'm broken and sinful and tainted with sin. 
And there's nothing that I can do to save myself from my own predicament. And you see, it's not until Romans chapter 3 that I learn about the grace of God. That all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But he who abides in me and I in him, I will produce a good work in him. And day after day, week after week, month after month, I begin to look and act more like Jesus. He begins to change me from the inside out. My behaviors begin to change. My actions begin to change. And not only that, people begin to say, there's something inside of you. Don't worry, PETA followers, it's a fake fish, it's okay. (laughs) But people begin to see something different. They say, what is that on the inside? You seem so so loving, so joy-filled. You're so patient, it makes me sick. How are you so patient and kind and gentle and faithful and full of self-control? What is it that you have on inside of you? I just want that. I can't quite pinpoint it, but there's something going on in your life. And you see, Christ in me begins to change. And people in my life, my friends and my family members and my coworkers and my neighbors, they begin to experience the love of Christ too. And before I know it, Christ in me becomes Christ in them too. That's kind of loud. That's going to distract me. (laughs) And my friend comes up to me and he says, Justin... My marriage is starting to change. I said, that's amazing. He said, yeah, and I wrote a letter to my dad. It's been 12 years since I talked to him. I've been so filled with bitter, so filled with anger and resentment, but the longer I follow Jesus, the more it continues to subside and go away. I just want to restore relationship with my father once again. I said, that's amazing. And yet, every single person in this room, myself included, we have those moments in our life where we're sitting at Romans chapter 6 and we have that, you know, that little guy on our shoulder and we say, what's the big deal? Can't I have my cake and eat it too? Can't I, can't I just be a follower of Jesus and punch the golden ticket but also get whatever I want? There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. We don't need to be legalistic. I can watch whatever I want to watch, say whatever I want to say. It's not a big deal anyway. We don't have to be Pharisees. We don't have to be judgmental. Why don't we just do whatever we please? And then I say to you, it's no wonder that our life is a far cry from what it's supposed to be. Sure, Jesus is still on the inside, but you rarely see him. Maybe from time to time, you still get a glimpse of Jesus. Oh, there he goes. Not very often. 
Maybe you hear the right message on a Sunday morning and you're feeling especially benevolent after it or you're on the Christian radio and you hear your favorite song and you say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus today, but then you quickly fall back into the old attitudes and habits and behaviors. Because we're not just saved from, we are also saved to so that others may see the life of Christ in you and experience the joy that you have found, but they look at your life and they say, I don't want anything to do with that. It looks exactly like my life. Seems like Christ hasn't done much for you. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. You've punched the golden ticket. You've said, I'm a follower of Jesus but by way of your attitudes and habits and behaviors, your life looks a little bit like this container. Well, this is the good news that I wanna share with you this morning. The good news is what we find in 1 John chapter 1, verse nine, where Jesus says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that in that way, others may see the good works in you and glorify the, our God and Father in heaven. That's the hope and the prayer that we have, is that on account of the person, the work of Jesus, we won't just say, I've punched the golden ticket, but that we will experience the true joy that comes in being a follower of Jesus. Not just in the life to come, but in this life, here and now. Don't be like the butterfly that chooses to grovel on the ground like the caterpillar. You have experienced metamorphosis. You have been changed on account of the gospel. So live in it. Here's the sad reality. I put it this way in your note sheet. Many take their freedom and choose to stay in prison. We take our freedom and we choose to stay in prison. We take what Christ freed us from and we still live in the old life. But this is, this is my prayer for you. I'm taking something that Charles Spurgeon wrote and, and I want to deliver it to you straight to your ears this morning. He said this, God has so changed your nature by his grace that when you sin, you shall be like a fish on dry land. You shall be so out of your element and long to get into a right state again. You cannot sin, for you love God. You love God. May we be so captivated by God's grace and his mercy in our life that we resolve in our heart of hearts wholeheartedly to follow him in obedience and love. Christ does not ask for perfection. He asks for obedience. Will you repent? Will you turn and follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel that changes us from the inside out. But Lord, each and every one of us in this room, we know that we have moments in our life where we're in the same place where Paul was in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where we want to exploit the grace that you have given to us. 
We ask, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict our hearts, that you would take our hearts of stone and that you would turn it into a heart of flesh, and that we would always desire to follow you in obedience. And that we would have a longing that others in our life, our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, would experience the joy that we have in you and that they might step over the line to follow you as well. Lord, do that good work in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.